0: Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurists, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Simon Montgomery as a and naturalist, a conservationist and author of over 28 books i think at this point um for both children and adults ranging on a variety of subjects but all kind of centered around conservation and our experiences with the natural world um it was a real joy speaking with Sai. I just finished her book, The Soul of an Octopus, which is an incredible read. It frames up a lot of this conversation that her and I had, but we also talk about our experiences writing other books and researching other books, um, and also her most recent book uh, called Becoming a Good Creature, which is a children's book written by Sai and and illustrated with some of the most beautiful illustrations I have seen. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation we had together. I felt like we uh, kind of got to know each other in a in a really nice way. Um, Sai is described as part Indiana Jones, part Emily Dickinson, which is the coolest description I have ever heard. So uh, definitely a bit of an inspiration to me, and probably to a lot of other people out there who who want to to inspire people to really have appreciation for the natural world. Um, As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy. If so, please like, rate, review, and subscribe. That all helps. Oh, so much. Um, And yeah, beyond that, thank you very much just for listening. All right. Well, enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Sai. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to be on. Thanks (laughs) for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, I I just got it uh, introduced to you through my mom. Uh, she recommended the book, The Soul of an Octopus. And we were on this topic talking about this because of the recent Netflix special, My Octopus Teacher. I love the book so much; it's so incredible. Um, I've got a lot of questions about it, but first, like, can you talk a little bit about what got you involved with studying octopuses? Which, in like page one, we learned it's not octopi, <laughs> which was helpful. Right, for me. right. And then, uh, <laughs> and what, and what you learned? What you learned when you, um, you know, were studying them.
1: Oh, my, you can hear Thurber, my mammalian <laughs> friend here.
0: Um, <laughs> all right, I've got one
1: too. <laughs> I hope your listeners appreciate and don't mind if <laughs> I, he pipes in every now and then. I love uh, it. Well, you know, as a writer, I'd, I'd written over, gosh, probably 25 maybe books at that at that point in my career, in March 2011 when I began my research for this book, and they were all about animals and nature. And I considered myself a naturalist, but as you know, most of life on this earth, most animals on this earth are not animals like ourselves with backbones who breathe air and live on land. Most animal life is invertebrate, does not have a backbone, um, and lives in the ocean. And I thought, it's about time I get to know somebody like that. (laughs) And I also, I've been writing for a long time about animals who, who clearly have thoughts and feelings, animals who think and feel and know. And I think it's important that we recognize the, the consciousness, the awareness all around us in other species. We are not the only animals that have what we call consciousness. And so when I set forth to do The Soul of an Octopus, I wanted it also to be a vehicle to examine the wonder of consciousness. And if I could demonstrate by becoming friends with an octopus that this invertebrate more closely related to clams and snails than to us, if I could show that, I thought this would go a long way in promoting compassion hmm. for all of life on this earth.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, and it seemed like, I mean, it worked for me, um, but yeah, I do want to talk about, you mentioned uh, um, clams and snails, but there is a similarity we have, right? Our octopus, oh yeah. Me, that they don't, they don't have brains, right? Clams and uh, shells don't. Clams right. And, they um, do snails. not.
1: And octopuses definitely have a brain, right. but their brain looks nothing like ours. And I could easily see scientists of earlier eras looking around in a dead octopus's body for something that looks like our brain Uh. and concluding, nope, nothing there. And, you know, this is the case, I think, a lot of times when when humans are looking for some valued human characteristic in Mm -hmm. another animal or even in other humans. If, if you fail to recognize it, you conclude it isn't there. But, you know, an octopus's brain is a ring around its throat. And while it doesn't exactly have nine brains, its eight arms are capable of functioning without communicating with the central brain at all. There's, there's tons of people who dismissed birds, for example, bird brains. They were so stupid because their brains were small. But, used to be a computer took up a whole big room, and now you can put a computer in your pocket. Right. So anything can be miniaturized. So when we make a conclusion like, oh, such and such is not present, isn't there, we, we can't really say that. All we can say is, well, I didn't see it. But there's a lot of things in this world that we don't see, which we know are real. And animals can often experience them in a better way than we do. And I'm talking about things like infrasound, which we can't hear, but which elephants do. Um, and sonar, which we can't perceive with our senses, but dolphins do. Um, electromagnetic fields, which sharks can sense, but we cannot. And I could go on and on and on. There, there's real phenomena in the world that we can't tell it's there with our senses but other animals know it.
0: And you also I've heard you talk about like people who anthropomorphize. So when they ascribe personality traits to non-human animals mm-hmm. um and uh and you kind of have to combat that by, Well, I mean I'll let you say like wh- what do you think of when someone says that? What is your what is your thought process when someone ascribes oh this this is uh you know sentient like us or not sentient or something like that
1: well first the whole idea that all emotions are purely human (laughs) is absurd it's insane and it is proved wrong by science we know for example that our emotions are made possible by um neurochemical uh changes um we know that cortisol causes stress and that um, it's produced by stress. We know that oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, facilitates social interaction. There's, there's lots of things. All of these neurochemicals are present in other animals. Mm-hmm. So the chemical basis of emotion that we know from science Exists and is real and is not just something we make up. Is, is present in all across taxa, and in fact, there are some some very similar things that plants even have, even our genes. We share like forty percent of our DNA with a banana, so oh, wow. we're more alike than than we are unlike with with the rest of the world. Now, of course, it's possible to project project your feelings onto somebody else, and we've all had that experience. You buy someone a present you know they're going to love for their birthday, and the next thing you know, they've returned it. Or, you know, you, you ask someone out on a date that you're certain that they're just going to love you, and they decline. That always happens. We do project our emotions onto other humans and onto other animals. But I think it's a much bigger mistake to think that only... Humans have emotions. That's a huge, huge mistake. And our experience of the world is, frankly, our lens. Let's use it as a tool to understand others. Now, of course, you want to understand, you know, fish do not want to be released from the water, whereas I would be unhappy if I were underwater so long that I drowned. You know, fish don't long to be taken out of the water. We've got to recognize, of course, that, you know, Animals are at home in their own specialized bodies and in their own habitats, and they may be different from ours. You might want to hug that wild lemur, but he doesn't know from that, mm-hmm. you know, so you've got to be reasonable about it. But um, the golden rule of treating others as we would like to be treated actually works pretty well when you're talking about other animals, as long as you're aware of their special habitat needs and social needs and that they are another species.
0: Yeah. And I like how the way you present that, it seems like you're comfortable. You're not only comfortable with it, but you're pleased with it that, you know, we, we have all these shared abilities, right? We have all the shared, whether it's sentience or or feelings or, or cortisol, um, For me, it makes me feel less alone. It makes me feel. I agree. You know?
1: Oh, yes, Brian, absolutely. I feel exactly that way. And other scientists have found that this is a good way to study animals. For example, Jane Goodall, who we were talking Mm. about before, Diane Fossey, and Veruti Galdikas, the three scientists who spent the longest studying humans' closest relatives, chimps and gorillas and orangutans, um, orangutans, um, the way that that they made their breakthrough understanding of animals, the way that they found out that animals use tools, the way that they discovered that chimpanzees wage war, was by using every possible tool these women had, which included not just their intellect, but also their emotions. They became friends with the animals that they studied. They gave them names. And at first, this was such a a maverick idea. It It was thought to be, you know, crazy. And no one wanted to publish Jane's first paper, which announced tool use in another species for the first time. They didn't want to publish it because she named her animals instead of numbered them like interchangeable rocks. But that was the key to the whole thing. Getting to know each individual as an individual, which was reflected in the names that she gave to her study subjects who were more than just study subjects to her. They were friends.
0: And that that's another interesting point. Like, okay, I could see someone would not understand that about animals. And I can even see someone who would not understand that there are different emotions within invertebrates. Uh, mm-hmm. But you have first hand experience that they um that the octopuses that you worked with and studied had different emotions they had different intelligence levels they had just different personalities um and different reactions to you and to other people who they would encounter um yeah can you talk a little bit about that
1: oh yeah absolutely um it's so interesting the first octopus I met was named Athena and from the moment we met, I, I didn't know what to expect when Scott Dowd lifted the lid to Athena's tank at New England Aquarium that day in March 2011. I had no idea what to expect, but I was quite surprised and excited to see Athena's eye swivel in its socket, lock onto my face. I saw her turn bright red with emotion, <laughs> and then she chose to leave her lair and come over to meet me. And soon, her hands, had, I mean, her, she didn't have hands, her, <laughs> her arms were boiling up out of the water, and my hands, I found, were plunging into the water to meet her. And she covered my skin with her soft suckers, and octopuses can taste with all of their skin, including their eyelids, but it's most concentrated, that ability is most concentrated in the suckers, and so she was tasting me and feeling me at the same time. And it was obvious that she was just as curious about me as I was about her. It also was evident that she liked the fact I was there. Right. I was able to pet her head, and I was told that no other visitor had um, had done that and anyone else who tried to do it except for a few staff members Athena would jet away did not want that so they make it clear what they want and what they what they don't want if they don't like it they they go away in fact some octopuses if they see someone who they don't like they sometimes will blast them in the face with breathing cold (laughs) salt water before they jet away so this was just on our first meeting. I later got to know other octopuses. I came back and saw her several times, but Athena was already elderly by the time I met her, and she died before we could get to be what I considered friends. But I got to know other octopuses very well indeed. And it was very clear that they chose my company that um, and that they would... Given a choice between one individual and another, they liked some people more than others. And why? It's not that I was a better person or anything, but one thing I'm sure they could tell. Because, you know, they're tasting you, which is a chemical sense, and I think that they can tell a lot from your skin. Um, I think they can they can probably taste what's going on beneath your skin, too. And they're very observant animals. They have to be, because everyone wants to eat an octopus. <laughs> and they have to be because they can eat just about everyone who's not eating them. So they they have to pay attention to how different animals behave so they can both escape from their enemies and seek out their food. So I I think it was it's been obvious to every octopus I've ever met that I am not afraid of them right. and that I am not going to hurt them. But I also have some experience and I I know you know what what kind of touch they they tend to like, and I I can tell when an octopus is about to recoil. Well, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you're when you're with animals that you know well, both individuals and species that you know well, you kind of know what might work. You know, you know that a dog, many dogs like to be scratched behind the ears, for example, and that um, dogs generally don't like being petted, pat 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 on top of the head. The first they they meet you, and generally they don't like that at all. most dogs don't like being hugged, although many children love dogs and want to hug them, but dogs don't like it right. um but they put up with it because they're so polite um same thing with horses. you know what makes a horse comfortable and happy and i I feel that way generally with with octopuses and but they know a lot about each individual that they meet um one person that um none of the octopuses really wanted to interact with is a lovely person who I adore and is my best friend, but she's a heavy smoker.
0: Right, I remember that. So she tastes
1: like nicotine, and they don't want the nicotine. So sometimes it's not your personality they're reacting to, it's some other characteristic. Just like, you know, people sometimes, they, they look at someone and it reminds you of evil Uncle Zeke, so you don't cross the room to meet that person, you know.
0: So I always love when there's like, a a theme or or, uh you know a thread between these podcast episodes so uh early like a couple months ago i spoke with carl safina um which is an incredible Mm. conversation we talked about a lot of this we talked about like how there's yeah how there's culture in animal um uh in in the animal kingdoms and how there's um you know emotion and, and and teaching and intelligence um which he
1: has I, written so eloquently on that, um, yeah,
0: you can tell that he's he loves what he does, and you can tell that he's quite versed in it. And you're right, very eloquent as well. But I just think it's interesting to I'm hoping, I'm always hoping that there seems to be like a um a reawakening with something like this, where people actually yeah. are starting to realize that that we're not the only uh animals on this planet that might have these certain things and then on top of that not be scared by it not feel uncomfortable but rather feel less alone like uh we were talking about earlier um yes. i don't know if you feel that way i know that you uh you know you much like Carl Safina, write about this um and probably research it significantly
1: yeah i feel exactly this way i feel exactly <laughs> this way I want to be embedded in a family of, of life and happily I am, you know, my DNA, um, as does yours, is is shared with the rest of animate creation. And what I love is that not only science but creation stories all around the world reiterate this. Um when you look at look at Genesis, you know, we all have the same parent. We all Arose from the same loving parent on the same planet, and um, some some of us were here before others of us. Um, humans were the the latest invention, um, but our parent loves us all and pronounced all of us good, and that is that same creation story that humans arose from the same place that all the animals did is echoed everywhere. It's it's as if it was in our DNA, which it is.
0: It's nice to hear, uh, especially from that perspective. Um, and I think, I'm hoping it's just a matter of us being exposed to this, uh, whether it's books like the ones you've written or, or um, you know, like a David Attenborough documentary, like something that can get the general public and children involved in conservation and understanding how close we are versus um, yes. counting the, the differences between us.
1: And And children are the natural allies. Because one, they haven't bought the lie that everything important in life is about money and appearance, <laughs> which is is so so hollow and so false and leading down totally the wrong path, but children are naturally attracted to animals and plants, and no wonder we're hunter gatherers right until just minutes ago, if you didn't pay attention to the natural world, something came along and ate you, yeah. And you couldn't find anything to eat yourself because you weren't paying attention to the right stuff. (laughs) Children's dreams are full of animals. Children talk to animals. Children take stuffed animals into bed with them. Children consider their their pets part of their actual family as if they are siblings. Mm. So I think kids have got it right. And if we just fail to screw them up with all these lies about just garbage about stuff that just ruins your life Mm -hmm. things are going to come out just fine yeah
0: and i think you're right i mean like we mentioned about briefly uh before but um you know my wife and i got back from uganda on our honeymoon and we the reason we decided to go there was because we had dreamed about it ever since we were kids because something somewhere along the way uh like you know really impacted us um and made us kind of have this lifelong uh, mecca or desire to go and see these creatures that we've been seeing um and then on top of that to preserve them and and do what we can to try and make sure they're around for generations to come and that happens when you're a kid and it's not to say it can't happen when you're an adult but i mean it's so much easier and so much more fun uh uh, as a kid, to to maintain that mentality um, and carry it on through adulthood.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think some of it is awe, and sure, yeah, children are constantly in awe because they've never seen any of this stuff because they haven't been alive, right? You know, they, they're they're in awe of the spoon. You know, <laughs> they're in awe of the ant on the sidewalk. They're in awe of the color of that cloud. And what a great. Way to be. And I am constantly in awe of the, the natural world. And when you look into the face of a wild mountain gorilla, it just rips your soul open with awe. Absolutely. It's a holy moment. And it connects you with everything, it's like dissolves your little self. Into the largeness and the majesty, the phosphorescence of the glorious world that we live in, and it, there's nothing like it, is there?
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's uh, like I'm I'm looking at your book right now, um, the uh, becoming a good creature. So it's I believe it's your most recent of you know your yeah this just books. came out
1: actually it just came out the very last moment of September.
0: It's incredible. I love it. Um and it's a, it's a children's book, but I feel like a lot of it, there's a lot of lessons that everyone can learn. Um and it, and what I like about you is when you're writing, you're not necessarily shielding children from anything. You're you're treating them as just as though they're curious adults.
1: Um, yeah. Well, they are. Exactly. You know? um <laughs> they haven't been alive as long as we have. But they certainly are worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did I did that book um, at, sort of a, inspired by or adapted from a book I did for adults called How to Be a Good Creature. And, of course, it doesn't have all the same stories in it because How to Be a Good Creature, um, the one for adults, I discuss things like um, very dark moments in in my life, for example, and right. in the very first chapter i I write about a head injury caused by shaking that I had when I was a, a child that gave probably gave me um brain injury Now that's not something you want to have in a in a book for children, but right. um the things that animals teach us they not only help adults through the big issues that adults face in their big grown-up lives but also the big issues that children face children face they're doing a lot of work as they're growing up they have to learn stuff like how to be courageous you know how to how to forgive um how how to be good in this world they're developing so many important things their challenges are huge and i wrote Becoming a good creature to assure children that teachers aren't just in school. Little did I know that right now a lot of teachers aren't even in school in school, you know, that, that so many so many classrooms would be closed due to COVID. But the teachers are all around us and they don't always have two legs, you know. Sometimes they'll have four or six or eight or they will be a snake with none, or they'll have arms like an octopus. And they're here to teach us. And all we have to do is recognize, oh, you have something to teach me. And you're going to be just fine.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love the way that you approach writing. Um, it seems like you've got your own strong sense of curiosity. And, you know, your 25 plus books have taken you around the world by, by researching them. Like what... First, like, what is your process for researching and writing a book, or determining—I guess even before that—determining what you're going to write about, and then setting, you know, embarking on this adventure to research and learn about it.
1: Well, figuring out what book to write next um, is often a, a. Some sometimes it's serendipity, often you are using kind of your intellect as as well as your heart to figure what might work. For my first book, I wanted it to be an homage to three women who had inspired me since before I could read, you know, Jane, Diane, and Berute. I really felt that that first book should be an act of homage to them. Mm. So that was very deliberately chosen, and it was a wise choice because at that time, my name certainly wasn't known as an author, but Jane's, Diane's, and Berute's were So I knew I was standing on the shoulders of giants. I also felt if I was going to make a career writing about animals, what more elementary place to start than the animals who share so much with us, that are so alike that you can get a blood transfusion from a chimpanzee. So that made total sense. So the next next book I wanted to write about um, predators because we have terrible relationships with predators, and I wanted yeah. to profile a relationship that wasn't terrible. So I found out there was this great place, one place in the world, where the tigers swim out after your boat and eat you and yet the people did not want to kill the tigers. They worshiped them. So I wanted to write about this. so that's you know, I, I go I go about this sometimes in a careful thought process what you know, what I want to get across. Uh and sometimes it's what what are readers ready for? This is why I did not write Soul of an Octopus until well, twenty eleven when I began my research. Hmm. I think if I had started Writing that book, which when it came out in 2015, it was a bestseller, but if it had come out when my first book came out in 1991, people would have thought I was crazy and they wouldn't have read it, because I don't think readers were ready to consider that an octopus might even have a soul.
0: Gotcha, yeah.
1: And I I think that this is a measure of what readers are ready to consider. And it's sometimes what I'm ready to consider. Right now, I'm researching a book that's going to take several years. I'm doing it slowly because it is about turtles. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Yes. And the way that I was looking at octopuses and consciousness at the same time, what I'm going to be looking at with this turtle book is going to be time itself. Because I think (laughs) turtles are very good guides and mentors to considering how we experience and use time.
0: Hmm. Like, how, how so?
1: Well, they certainly have been on Earth for a long time. That's true. Um, over 240 million years, depending on who you consider is the turtle ancestor. So they're a very ancient creature who, who often figures in creation stories, for example. Um, they also live life in a fairly slow way. Many of them live for hundreds of years. So, again, when I, when I began doing this research, I had no idea that COVID-19 was going to warp our sense of time so dramatically. But I'll tell you, it is really something to be writing about turtles and thinking about time at this moment in history, and another thing that's amazing about working with the turtles. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm working with the Turtle Rescue League of Southborough, so, sorry, um, Southbridge, Massachusetts. I, I go there once a week, and uh, what what they do is they rescue turtles in distress. And in the summer, often the distress is that. The turtle has been hit by a car and its shell is broken. Mm, And you literally have to put that animal back together, that broken animal back together. And at a time when it feels that our country is shattered and our citizenry is sick, it is wonderful to have a hand in literally putting a piece of the broken world back together. And being able to put back into the wild an animal that isn't going to just live a few more years, but could live another half century or more. Yeah. So that's a great blessing just for me personally to be doing this right now.
0: That's such a good way of putting it because, um, another reason that it's probably serendipitous that you're working on, um, Turtles in in particular, maybe sea turtles right now, is because they're they've had a relatively good year from what I'm hearing. We live by the coast and just I guess anecdotally, we know it's been a good year for them because so many people were people
1: weren't swarming the beaches and the beaches weren't all lit up like a Christmas tree, causing them to go the wrong way. And the horrible egg poachers weren't out. It was a good year for a lot of animals, just because human beings right now, because of the way, you know, our our dependence on fossil fuels, for for one thing, and just our sheer number is so destructive.
0: Right.
1: Now, we got a lot of injured um, turtles this year. We did not get fewer, um, but that may not be because fewer turtles were run over. It may be that the turtles that were were run over, there were people around to call turtle rescue. There were more people that noticed. Uh and did something about it. So the roads were less busy, and so I was thinking that fewer animals were run over. And in fact, the data does show that in general, um, probably the greatest conservation success of human history was that the coronavirus took fewer, you know, took, took all these cars off the road. That someone actually looked at the numbers of animals that did not die because of that, and it's like a billion animals unbelievable just in America. Um so probably fewer turtles did die because there were fewer cars on the road. Um but Turtle Rescue League did not get fewer animals in to the hospital. But that's all right because that's why they exist to help right. turtles and so it was it was it was good. I mean man, some days we would be on the road, releasing a turtle who had been healed and ready to go, and on the way to release that turtle, we'd get another call about a turtle in distress and then we would go to pick up that turtle, and on the way to pick up that turtle, we'd get another call and i mean it was it was some days the phone was literally ringing off the hook, and um, it was it was wild, but you're just so happy to be part of the solution
0: does that does that part ever get depressing like you see conservation stories by virtue of researching you see them around the world is there ever a time where just knowing human impact just gets overwhelming or gets um, too much
1: yeah there's there's times when you just feel like you've got compassion fatigue or you've you've got to just sure Turn off the radio or the TV or the email, and that's okay to do. Um, I was surprised; even Mother Teresa um, experienced despair. It was in her her letters. I just read this the other day, so it's okay. I mean, even even Jesus at at, at one point
0: right.
1: um, felt like you know. If you could take this cup away from me, that would be just fine. Uh, so it's it's all right to feel it's all right to feel that way. and and when you do, you just take a step back. Humans can't work twenty four seven. We have to rest. Um, and it's it's okay to rest your heart for a few minutes. But I find that if you are doing something about it, that's what really makes you feel better. It's when you feel like you can't do anything about it. And the great thing is, we all can make a difference, even if it's just not taking home a stupid plastic bag from the store. Yeah, thank you know, you. I didn't kill any sea turtles today because I asked for paper. Yeah. You know, and we have opportunities all the time to make a choice for better. And right now, here we are, days from the election, and many of us have already have already voted, but, you know, there's a wonderful opportunity. Um, every time we choose something to eat, every time we go out of the house and choose to get in a car or on a bicycle or uh, whenever we go shopping, we have an opportunity to make a choice that can make a better world, and I feel pretty terrific about that.
0: That's nice. That's comforting. I, I battle with it. And for the most part, I feel positive. But then sometimes even hearing positive stories about COVID makes me feel negative because I know that the, you know, it's solely because of humans is why, I'll, you know, a lot of these issues exist in the first place. But, um, you know, but I, it, once we
1: see, for example, that. Oh, air pollution went away. (laughs) I liked that. Hey, let's try to make the air pollution go away. We actually, we have the technology to reverse global climate change. We have the technology to get rid of air pollution. It's right here. We really just need the, the political will. To hmm. to nudge things in that direction, we know how to do it. It's not like we have to make up some entirely new thing, as as if making up an entirely new thing is not humans' very favorite thing to do. I was say,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> but goodness, we we know we know what needs to be done, and we can do it. So that's terrific. COVID has shown us we can do this. So that's. I mean, I I think. I don't want to come out as a big fan for a virus that has killed over 220 million
0: Americans,
1: um, and I'm not. But sometimes teachers can be quite harsh, and this virus is teaching us stuff that can make us better citizens on this earth. And one way to start is to stop doing the things that's going to cause the next pandemic, which caused this one, Mm -hmm. which was murdering animals that we should have just left the heck alone Mm -hmm. and not pushing into their habitat, not eating a bunch of bats, for goodness sakes. I've gone my whole life without eating a bat. and I'm (laughs) doing just fine. Um, And a lot of these animals are not eaten because, oh, they couldn't have anything else to eat. They're sold as delicacies to make a whole lot of money. That's what's sold at these wildlife, these illegal wildlife markets. It's, it's not people are starving, so they're trying to eat bats. So let's not do that. It's kind of like that <laughs> joke, you know? When I do this, doctor, it really hurts. And he says, well, then don't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Well, and it's exactly like what you mentioned earlier and what Becoming a Good Creature is about. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're not always going to, your teacher isn't always going to be in school. Your teacher isn't always going to be when you're a child. We might all be having the same teacher right now, and it might be a a harsh, forceful, austere teacher. But it's giving us valuable lessons if we're ready to learn. Uh, if we're ready mm-hmm. to to take those. Um, do you? Uh, so when when you're writing, so it seems like the first is you know you kind of have this rubric of uh, certain things that interest you. I imagine that's where it kicks off, right? You're you're going to write about what interests you. Um, are you oftentimes because even in um, the soul of an octopus you had to pull away from the aquarium when you were studying octopus or octopuses um, to go on a couple safaris um, are you often yeah. kind of writing is, is the overlap kind of happening often
1: yes uh, and, and that's just a fact of life as a freelancer you know because so. you you can't you know write a proposal wait around for the proposal to get shopped by your agent and then get some money to do it and then spend a couple of years writing it and then, or a couple of years researching it and then a year writing it and then wait around for it to come out. Um, you, You have to have things coming all the way down the pike. So I always have a project that I'm actively researching Uh, I always have a project that's fixing to come out and I frequently have a project that is out and I'm having to promote it and at the same time I'm thinking about another project that I'm going to start on as soon as the ink is dry Mm -hmm. on the project that I'm working on. So right now, for example, I'm working on actually two books on turtles. One is a picture book Um, I'm working with a wonderful artist who's also a character in the longer book, Matt Patterson, whose artwork is like John James Audubon. He's just amazing. So I'm working on those, those two books. I've actually finished writing the copy for the picture book. It's not a picture book for little, little kids, although little kids could certainly enjoy it, but it's a picture book with... Absolutely jaw dropping facts about turtles that adults don't know and would thrill people. So that's done. That's in the pipeline. Another book that's in the pipeline coming out in the spring is a book on hummingbirds called The Hummingbird's Gift, which is finished and written and coming out this spring. I also have another book coming out a picture book on a seagull and a sea captain. That's coming out, I think, in two years, I've got a scientist in the field book that I wrote the proposal for, organized the expedition for, was all set to go but guess what, could not go to Ecuador this August, so that's going to happen next August so all of those things are coming down the pipeline at once (laughs) and I'm promoting, right now um, I'm promoting the new uh, picture book, Becoming a, a Good Creature, so I've been doing lots of of talks and all on zoom of course
0: and, and yeah and you've got people like that. like me asking you about uh you know soul of an octopus you wrote five right. years, you finished you know five seven years ago so <laughs> all over the
1: place right but i mean as you pointed out there's a lot of octopus stuff happening right now that fantastic netflix film yeah. oh i loved it so much it was just wonderful
0: yeah, it was incredible. And it seemed like like when I was watching it, I was like, wow, okay, this seems like it might be a one-off like this guy's really falling for this octopus in, in just a um like like in a way of admiration and um and uh you know, complete awe. But it sounded like you had a very similar experience.
1: Yes. And there's there's been quite a Bit of wonderful octopus stuff since Soul of an Octopus came out. And one of the things that I'm very happy about is I, I think that my book kind of helped roll out the red carpet for other books about octopuses like Other Minds um, by my, my friend Peter Godfrey-Smith, uh, the film Making Contact which features my friend David Scheel and his home octopus, Heidi, and his daughter, uh, and this wonderful film on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. I think there's a, a, a real hunger for it, and there's now an octopus fan club, That's called Octonation, run by my friend Warren Carlisle, and it has an enormous number of of followers. And there's a whole new division, Octopus Nation, Octonation Kids, for children who love octopus. It's just it's just great, and it's great to be part of this growing family of of enthusiasts. And I'm thrilled that that my work helped provide fertile ground for all this other wonderful, creative stuff.
0: Yep. And it came out at the right time. Like you were saying, maybe 30 years prior, it might have not had this impact or influence. But now... Yeah, and
1: I I know from being a writer, uh, I, I know that the success, when you have a, a national bestseller about octopus, that really does pave the way for for more things about Octopus. I know how timid the publishing community can be. And my my publisher, Simon & Schuster, very big publisher, great people, love my editor. Um, they did not give me a national book tour, I must tell you. I paid for it myself. My husband and I put up the money to do a national book, book tour for that book. My publisher did not anticipate this to be a national bestseller. My publisher did not anticipate it being a finalist for the National Book Award at all. (laughs) Not one bit. But once you've got one national bestseller that gets that kind of attention, all of a sudden, anything about Octopus is far more welcome than it was before. So I am very delighted to have helped usher in all this other terrific work—that's
0: got to be a great feeling, yeah. Um, so, with all with all of the research you've done, with all of the places that your writing has taken you, like you've—I mean, I don't want to undersell you. I mean, you, people call you part Indiana Jones, part Emily Dickinson. I think that's the coolest way to be described. <laughs> you've been like, you know, made four trips to the Amazon. You swam with pink dolphins. You've, you've. You know, you learn to dive for, um, you know, the Soul of an Octopus. You've been to Papua New Guinea and places many, many other people haven't been. Most, I don't think anyone has been before. Like, Mongolia, Mountain gorillas. like, where was the most difficult place? And what was the most, I guess, difficult slash rewarding book you were, you were working on and you were writing?
1: Well, probably the most uncomfortable place. <laughs> I ever went, was my first expedition for my first book, which I went to Borneo, to Kalimantan Tenga, yeah. to the swamps of Borneo where the orangutans live. And my God, Brian, it was, at first it was wonderful because orangutans were everywhere. And <laughs> I got to be with Berute Galdikas and I, I made a friend who I will love till the end of my days, Diane Taylor Snow, who ended up being the photographer for several of my books, and who I love and cherish. So um, it was it was wonderful, but it was so uncomfortable. First, it was miserably hot, and you could never, ever not be miserably hot. You could never not be sweaty and disgusting unless you were sitting in the water. Um you were constantly being chewed by insects. Poisonous caterpillars would fall out of the sky and get down your shirt and bite you. Oh, If that's you fun. sat on a log, there's so many different trees there. The sap on some of the logs is actually toxic enough to burn your skin black through your pants. Oof. We were constantly picking leeches out of our underwear and socks. It, it was just absolutely so uncomfortable and p.s i got dengue fever which oh, can kill you wow yeah that is so, really no joke oh yeah it, it was so uncomfortable and one of the things that we did one of the most rewarding and exciting things that we did was also extremely uncomfortable taking care of orphan baby orangutans yeah. now they're dear, darling creatures you love them but they're used to hanging on to their mother's long orange fur and I lack long orange fur. So, what are they doing is they're pinching you painfully with their hands and their feet. At the end of the day, you were just black and blue from being pinched by baby orangutans who are trying to hold on to you like they would hold on to their mother and you would try to get them to hold on to your clothing but frequently, they would hold on to your clothing and your skin as, as well. And, there were all these, I remember there being a lot of flies. And you would sit there with your morning coffee, and before you could bring it to your lips, a dozen flies would have drowned <laughs> in it. it. It was such a, a hard place to work. And my hat is off to anyone who can work in those conditions. And I was only there for a couple of weeks. But um, my friend Diane, who worked at um, Baruches Camp, worked there for years, and Barute, of course, has worked there for years. So yeah, far and away, that would be the most uncomfortable place I had worked, and the most dangerous, because it was the only time that an animal, a mosquito, had ever
0: mm-hmm.
1: nearly killed me. And I didn't know at the time I had dengue. I did not get a doctor. You know, I had no doctor's help at all. I was just unconscious in a flop house. We got as far as Singapore. I knew I was very ill. And I was with Diane, and um, Diane didn't have dengue, but she, unbeknownst to her at the time, she found out when she got home, she had hepatitis. So the two of us were very, very sick, and we had no money, right? So we're staying at this, we're in the Indian um, quarter, which was the cheapest quarter at the time of Singapore. And we had this pact that if I woke up and she was dead, I was going to call her husband, And if she woke up and I was dead, she was going to call my husband. Mm -hmm. But there were no phones in the rooms. So that, of course, added the annoying chore of trying to find a phone that you could use to call the United States. Anyway, um, that wasn't the most remote place, though, I've ever worked. The most remote place I ever worked was one of the most heavenly. And that was the Huon Peninsula of Papua New Guinea, where I went with Dr. Lisa Daybeck to study tree kangaroos. And that was a place that, except for the local people of that particular tribe, no one except Lisa and her people had ever set foot there.
0: Wow.
1: It was so great and beautiful.
0: Cy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. This has been incredible learning about your process, learning about everything that you've written about and planned to write about, um, and, and also just getting to get uh, some insight on your positivity. I really uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
1: Um, oh, the pleasure was mine, Brian. And I'm <laughs> delighted to connect with all of your fans on your podcast.
0: Well, absolutely. Well, we'll have to do this again sometime as I uh, dig deeper into your catalog of books. But Boy, uh, sign
1: me right up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining. If you
0: liked that episode for free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget yourboots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.